This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. I have had many conversations with Terry Mattingly. They all circle around the same theme, the need for more and better religion news coverage. Those two things go together, more and better, but more has to come before better, because if there isn't any religion news coverage, you can't really improve it. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate in the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. What's the number one reason that is usually given for not allowing more religion news coverage? That's an absolutely impossible question to answer. I just looked back through things I've written over the 40 years or so that I've been researching this topic. And of course, I wrote my graduate project at the University of Illinois in 1981, 1982 on precisely this topic. And almost everything that's in it is still relevant today. I would have trouble getting it down to 10. And how editors basically state it is that they can't understand why people think it's news. So why do you cover religion if the editors who decide what news is don't think that it's important, that it's really news? And the story I always tell, I was looking to see if we had discussed this before, and I think I told this about two years ago when we were talking about coverage of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I talked about, I came back from probably the most angry, bitter Southern Baptist Convention I've ever covered, and that's saying something. This one was in Kansas City. The big issue was the ordination of women. Does that sound familiar? I mean, like, here we are decades later, and they're still arguing about it. And the coverage got all kinds of reader response. They ended up publishing, and this was a broadsheet, not a tabloid, a broadsheet newspaper, the big format. And the editorial page ended up running an entire page of letters to the editor about the Southern Baptist Convention. And a week or two later, maybe it was a four weeks later, but I got a news tip about a very, very important development in the fights within the Southern Baptist Convention. And not only that, the story was going to be in Charlotte, our town, the town where one of the main streets is Billy Graham Boulevard. And so I got a tip that there was going to be a meeting in Charlotte from the people who were upset with the conservative, they would say fundamentalist direction of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they were going to meet to talk about forming an alternative network for what was called moderate Southern Baptist. This ended up being the first step toward building an national organization called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, an alternative funding mechanism for people that were in the Southern Baptist Convention but didn't want to be in the Southern Baptist Convention. And this was going to be at one of the most prominent 
churches in Charlotte. I shot a note off to my editor and immediately ran out. I had been given a piece of paper that told me who some of the people were that were going to be at this meeting. And so I immediately ran because sometimes they don't want to take a phone call. So I decided to go, in journalism we call it, present the face. I was going to go knock on the door. And sure enough, I got someone to confirm that this meeting was occurring. And then off the record, they confirmed that, yes, that's a list of a lot of the people, not all of them, but a lot of the people who've been invited. I rushed back to the newsroom. I mean, this story is going to be on the CBS Evening News if we report it because of all the coverage that was given to the Kansas City Convention. And I got back, and the first thing I did, this was early in the computer era, I called up on the main line computer, the, the mainframe, I called up to see where my story was budgeted. Where were they going to put my story? And of course, I looked on page one. This is a national story. It's going to be on page one. It wasn't on page one. I went, okay, maybe it's on the metro page, the lead of the metro news, the local news section. They don't understand the story yet. It's not on the metro page. And I kept scrolling down, and at the bottom it was Terry Mattingly, go see the editor. Go see the editor in charge of deciding, essentially driving the news coverage. Not the editor that runs the whole thing, but the guy in charge of deciding what's news. And as we used to say in Charlotte, this was a guy who was raised Unitarian and then backslid. He had won a Pulitzer outside the Bible Belt, and he was a nationally known editor. He's a great editor. But I sat down, I asked, what about the story for today? What about the story for today? And he kind of sighed and leaned back his chair and said a famous quote in my life. He said, Terry, we're not going to cover that story today. We're not going to do it. And then I went down to my desk and I wrote down his next words. And his next words were, nobody reads that stuff but fanatics. And every time you write about it, we get too many letters to the editor. And what he couldn't hear was those two planes passing each other in different directions. Nobody reads this stuff but fanatics. And every time we write about it, we get too many letters to the editor. And what he was saying is, I can't understand why this story is so important to our readers and it isn't important to me. And I can't be wrong because this is a Pulitzer sitting on my shelf. How can I be wrong? So we're going to make the story go away. And that was that. I wrote a column about it and it filtered out and it became a national story in other publications. So how would you sum up what you heard as a reason not to cover it? Now they had me as a religion writer and I didn't last long working for that editor. I got a chance to work at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver and I took it because there was an editor there who was really committed to covering religion. But how would you describe in a few words that long convoluted story I told? Well, it sounds like your editor, number one, had a preconceived idea about what that reader response had been to the convention itself. These must be fanatics because only fanatics would respond this way. And that's his first preconceived notion, although it's kind of contradictory to say, only the fringe reads it, but when we write about it, we get too much response. Right. And I'm in a town where one of the major streets is called Billy Graham Boulevard. <laughs> 
And Charlotte was a very, very, it was a dream town in which to cover religion. You had all kinds of things, including the fact that you had one of the only towns south of the Mason-Dixon line where you had more Presbyterians than you had Baptists. We had all kinds of national stories. We had Jim and Tammy Baker win their heyday at PTL, and years later the Charlotte Observer would win a Pulitzer, what I would call a reluctant Pulitzer for breaking a story about Jim and Tammy Baker that a reporter basically had to report on his own for years, starting off with some notes that I gave him when I left to go to Denver. But it was all about whether the editors wanted to cover religion or not. So here, I've got a whole long list here of some reasons for why people don't want to cover religion. But it comes down to the fact that the people who decide what news is, for a variety of reasons, aren't that interested in religion. Or when religion shows up and they have to cover it, they don't think of it as a religion story. And we can get to that in a little while, too. What about religion stories don't sell, in the old days, ad copy? And nowadays, it would probably be online advertising. And it helps that that's partially true. But that's especially true if every time churches and religious bookstores call the ad department, they say, well, here, why don't you call the religion editor and he'll run a tiny little blurb for you in the religion column, which is a long list of events in town being held, which is, you know, in other words, we don't want your money because we don't want to have to deal with it. And we frequently had major events in the towns where I worked related to religion with hundreds of people coming from all over. And those people would have never thought about running an ad in the newspaper because the churches didn't assume the newspaper would be interested either. So that's the flip side of the coin. When a newspaper demonstrates over and over and over that it's not that interested in religion, then the local people in the town who care the most about religion and might even want to buy ads for bookstores or concerts or stuff like that, they don't think to call and buy an ad in the newspaper. It's a coin with two sides. What are some other objections that you have heard and how would you respond to them? The very first paper where I worked full time, I was a copy editor and part-time rock and roll columnist, but it got everybody at the desk knew that I was a churchgoer, my father was a pastor, and that I knew a lot about religion, and they knew that my long-range goal in journalism was to be a religion reporter. And the city editor there, the news editor, had a great phrase that I thought summed this up. When people would call him that he didn't want to talk to on the phone, he called them green frogs. Like, there's a green frog on the phone. I don't have time to talk to this crazy person. Somebody talk to this person. I don't have time. And green frog, a very high percentage of the time, was a religious person calling because of something in the paper that they were mad about. And yes, it once again, it didn't help that many of these people would immediately accuse him of hating religion and not wanting to do a good job covering religion, and journalists are all going to hell anyway, so blah, 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 blah. And that's how you turn into a green frog. And I decided that one of the main reasons editors don't want to cover religion is they're terrified of making mistakes about religious topics. And they know religion is very complicated, and they know that when you mess them up, 
your phone is going to be full of messages from green frogs, which a green frog is defined as someone living in your community that you don't want to talk to. And a high percentage of those are religious wackos, as the other editor. Nobody reads that stuff but fanatics. And every time you do, we, we get too many. And if we make a mistake, people really are going to call and accuse me of hating them and hating religion. And you're going to go to hell and your newspaper is going to go to hell. And a lot of religious people have no idea how to talk to journalists. A member of the Billy Graham organization once said that it would help if I could teach a class in a seminary somewhere on teaching people how to talk to reporters. I tried to do that, and sure enough, the seminary didn't know how to handle that for very long. Okay, so let's do another one. It costs too much. We don't have enough staff. Now, this is true in all eras, but with the Internet crashing the budgets, of many, many, many local newspapers around America because digital ads don't work. This is a true one. But every time you say that it costs too much to have a professional religion reporter, you're in effect saying, I don't value this subject as much as the topics I'm automatically choosing to cover. There's no painless way to cut a shrinking pie. But the factors that go into the cutting of that pie tell you a lot about the values of newsrooms. When I was at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver, the religion desk had almost no travel budget at all. In fact, we added it up once that the entire metro sit desk for all local coverage and state coverage had a travel budget that was smaller than one month in the travel budget of the sports department. And what that meant, of course, was that, as I argued once, that the Denver Broncos were the most powerful religious group in Denver, Colorado. In fact, before one Super Bowl, I argued that if the Denver Broncos weren't a religion, then there wasn't anything called a religion. And I wrote a lengthy memo on why I should be a part of the Super Bowl coverage team, which got a really big laugh at the city desk. They weren't laughing, however, when at that Super Bowl, the number one story was the fact that Joe Gibbs of the Washington football team that we can't name now and Dan Reeves, the head coach of the Denver Broncos, were both born-again Christians and decided that the night before the Super Bowl, anyone from their two teams who wanted to get together were going to get together for a prayer meeting to pray that nobody would get hurt and everybody would do their best. And sports journalists were outraged that teams were going to get together and pray before something as important and holy as the Super Bowl. And the number one story ended up being about religion. So they're calling me from the Super Bowl, wherever it was that year, and they're going, Terry, um, can you help us cover this story? We don't know any of these people they're talking about. And it seems John Elway goes to a certain church and there's another player who leads a Bible study, can you help? So they ended up needing me, but I was back in Denver and they were a thousand miles away at the Super Bowl. But that's a, an example of another syndrome. And I can just keep going through this list, but pause and stop me at some point. But here's another reason I mentioned earlier. 
if a religion story is really important, then it's too important to be a religion story. Now, this obviously, I experienced this in my own life because I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter ran for president and started talking about being born again and watched journalists absolutely freak out that a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher who had been born again was going to run for president. I'll always remember at the end of the ABC Evening News, World News Tonight, watching the TV and at the end of one of the stories about Carter, and of course they had no religion reporter, no national network has a religion reporter. And at the end of the section on Jimmy Carter, the anchor looked into the screen with a serious voice said, ABC News is investigating born again Christians and will have a report in a future newscast. I mean, as if Martians had landed. No way did they understand that born-again Christians or evangelical Christians at that point in America were like 42% of the nation's population and that Jimmy Carter was way more normal than them. But nobody in the newsroom had any experience with that and thus this had to be a political story, not a religion story. I'm going to give you a couple of other examples. One of my mentors, a great religion writer named Lewis Moore, who was at the Houston Chronicle, noted that when the Jonestown Massacre occurred, and the Jonestown Massacre was led by a liberal church minister who had kind of gone, I think it's safe to say, had gone nuts. He, he drank the Kool-Aid both before and after he poisoned the Kool-Aid, and no religion reporter was sent to cover the Jonestown massacre, even though it was a religious community, by definition. No religion reporter, or very few, were sent to cover the Branch Davidian massacre, or the siege that led up to the massacre, outside of Waco. And later, I heard people involved in the policing and some people that later did films about it, they decided that, you know, if there had been people talking to the FBI and if there had been journalists covering what the Branch Davidians actually believed, it's possible the massacre never would have occurred in the first place. If there had just been some people covering the story that understood it. I'll end that section, the it's too important to be a religion story, with a great anecdote from my graduate project in the 1981-1982, when the late George Cornell, one of the greatest religion reporters who ever lived, Cornell said he made it a practice every year to study the Associated Press top 10 stories in the world. The top 10 stories in the world, and they run a poll on that every year. We always talk about the top 10 or 20 stories in America, American news every year. You and I always do that right before the first of the year when the poll comes out from the Religion Newswriters Association. Well, George Cornell would study the AP results, and he said that in the years he worked for the Associated Press, there was never a year in which the top 10 stories in the world didn't include at least four or five stories that had obvious religion content. And year after year, he would argue that he should be a part 
of the team that covered those stories. And in effect, he was told over and over, no, I'm sorry, that's a political election, or that's a, the election of a pope, that's a national tragedy, or that's people responding to a tsunami in ways that are obviously religious. That's a war in the Middle East, and it's affecting gas prices. But none of that's religion, because it's all too important to be religion. So thus we have to have real reporters cover it. And real reporters, by definition, are people who cover real subjects. And as you've heard me say how many hundred times, you could sum a lot of this up with politics is real, religion not so much. Politics is the real world, religion is a make-believe world, and thus we cover religion and politics as a political story alone. Terry, this Israel and Hamas story has been the story and will be for as long as it lasts. Does the very existence of that situation and that story argue for more and better religion news coverage? Well, what it certainly argues for is team coverage using a collection of specialists to cover the story with the obvious religion content being handled or at least edited by someone who knows what the heck they're talking about. Years ago, I had a chance to speak to the national staff of USA Today in Washington, D.C., and we were talking about how to improve religion coverage. And in the midst of that discussion, I asked people in the congregation if they could tell me why Shia Muslims fly one kind of flag, one color of a flag, and why Shuni Muslims fly another. Shuni fly green flags, and the Shia fly black. And I ask, could you describe for me why this is? And there wasn't anyone in the room. Now, we were in the middle of wars between Iraq and Iran, a Sunni state and a Shia state. And I said, the green flag represents new life. And the Shuni believe that after Muhammad and after the fall of, of his family lineage, new life sprang up and Islam went on. The Shia fly black because they're mourning the death of the line of Muhammad and still waiting someday for their equivalent of the second coming. But till then, they're in mourning and they fly black. I brought that up because in a recent set of hearings in the U.S. Senate, it became very apparent that no one on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee of the U.S. Senate understood the difference between Shuni and Shia Islam. And in fact, there were people there that assumed if you were dealing with, like say, radicals linked to Saudi Arabia, what would later become ISIS and whatever, that that must be the really dangerous people. That must be the Shia Muslims because Shia was in Iran and America had had a lot of trouble with Iran in the Carter years. So they assumed that these radical Shuni Muslims were actually Shia because Shia are more dangerous than Shuni. And these are the people making our policy 
on wars in Iran and Iraq. And the reporters listening to the hearing were going, well, this, okay, none of this sounds very important. Can we get back to covering the war? So I think one of the questions you're asking is, when there is a religion ghost, to use the term we use at, at Get Religion, when there is a religion subject that's haunting a really important global story, do you need someone who understands history, theology, etc., etc.? Do you actually need someone to cover the religion element who understands religion? And that comes back to something that I know we've talked about because I've looked it up. But do you remember the story that I've told many times about the Washington Post? The Washington Post years ago, early 90s, posted a notice on a bulletin board in the newsroom that they needed a new religion reporter. They had a great religion reporter for years, but that professional, this woman, had retired. And after a little while, they were seeking a new religion reporter. This was in the, like I said, the early 90s. This was the age of the fax machine, and somebody in the newsroom who was kind of outraged by this notice took it down and faxed a copy to a friend of mine, which is why I have the exact quote. And the key was they said that the ideal candidate for the religion writing job was, quote, not necessarily religious nor an expert on religion, end of quote. And the key word in that to me was ideal. Now, I personally don't believe that great religion reporters have to be religious. I've known some who were and some who weren't. I've known religious people who couldn't write their way out of a paper bag in a newsroom, and I've known atheists who weren't interested in the views of anybody but atheists. It, it cuts both ways. But why was the ideal candidate to be the religion reporter someone who wasn't religious? And then the key phrase, nor an expert on religion. Can you imagine the Washington Post putting up a notice to cover the Supreme Court? And at the end of it, it says the ideal candidate for this job does not have a law degree and, in fact, isn't interested in the law at all. They're going to bring us a new, fresh approach to covering the court without knowing anything about the law. Can you picture them putting up a National Football League beat story with the ideal candidate for this job does not like football and, in fact, knows nothing about football at all? Or can you imagine sending someone to cover the World Cup in soccer who doesn't know anything about soccer? Or an arts reporter who doesn't know anything about art and doesn't like art, doesn't go to anything related to art, doesn't care about art? Can you imagine the newsroom doing that? And the answer, of course, is no, because those subjects are all real. Those subjects all matter to someone in the newsroom who's in charge of a budget. And that kind of ends up being, once again, this whole problem in a nutshell. You have to have people running the newsroom who get religion before they will expend money and effort to hire a reporter who gets religion and then give that reporter the time and the inches of space and the money to do the job the way you would cover any subject that's really important. 
you have to have a journalism solution to this problem, which means you first of all have to see religion news as a journalism subject. And that, maybe in the end, is the problem. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.